We're going to now have a reading from Daniel chapter 5, and it's given to us by the Bully family. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel? One of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsim. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. I met a traveller from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped upon these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
It's a famous poem, Ozymandias, by Shelley. And it tells the story of a king. Uh, his tomb was discovered with a, a great statue that had fallen apart, and there was a, a pedestal with an inscription on it where the king boasted that he was the great king, the king of kings. He told people, look at what I have made. I am the greatest king on earth, and none of you will ever be as great as me. And then the brilliance of Shelley as a poet is just in a few words, he undoes him. Nothing beside remains. For all his boasting, for all his greatness, for the cities that he built, what is left of it all, says Shelley? Nothing but dust. A proud king who comes to nothing. And of course, that's what we have here in Daniel 5. It's, it's not a poem, it's a drama. It's a story, it's a true story of something that, that happened and played out, uh, but it's the same kind of story. It's a proud king who comes to nothing, and, and just like Shelley undoes Ozymandias in just a few words, so God undoes Belshazzar with four words, mene, mene, tekel, parsing. Uh, last week, uh, Paul uh, showed us this uh, helpful slide to uh, get us thinking that we're, we're in a, a pair of chapters here where two different kings are confronted by God, both proud, uh, and God, God humbles them and warns them, but they have two very different outcomes, whereas Nebuchadnezzar uh, repented and acknowledged God here, we have a king who, in his pride, does not and is destroyed. He comes to nothing. Uh, like I say, it's not a poem, it's a drama, and so it works a bit like this. Uh, there's a setting, the scene is set, uh, then there's action, uh, and then there's an explanation of what's happened. Uh, and we're going to walk through it in, in those sort of three, um, three Peters, if you like. So uh, first of all, we have, have the setting, and the setting is the proud king who mocked God. And we see in verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And, and straight away we get a feeling for the kind of King Belshazzar is. He thinks he's a big deal. He not only offers a banquet, a great feast, uh, he has a thousand nobles there. Uh, not to mention perhaps wives and others who were attending as well. Uh, and therefore the true numbers might have been, I don't know, three, four thousand? A huge feast. Imagine what it would take to provide the wine for that kind of feast, the, the banquet for that kind of feast. He's trying to say, look at me. I'm a big deal. Look at the kind of party that I can throw. Now, we get a hint of the kind of person he is, and you get a hint and a flavor of this party. It mentions the wine. He drank wine with the nobles, and while he was drinking his wine, in verse 2, it's an alcohol-fueled party. It's excessive, over the top. They're the flavors that we get of this party. But that in and of itself isn't, isn't the biggest problem. Uh, we, we sort of see, the writer leaves it right for the end of the chapter, and, and I sort of spoil it at this point by bringing it up here, but, but there's a kind of arrogant foolishness to this king. Here he is with a thousand of his most important nobles, all having fun drinking wine, and as they're doing that, little do they know, their city's about to be overrun. That very night, people are going to come in, attack, take the city, the king will be killed. What foolishness. But even that's not the real problem of Belshazzar. Verse 2, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. 
so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And this is the big deal. This is an act of sacrilege. This is a mockery of God's. He thinks nothing of taking special articles which were meant for the worship of God and using them for his own enjoyment and to praise false gods. He thinks, look who I am. I'm the greatest king on earth. I can do what I want. Even gods are nothing to me. I can take their relics that were used for their worship. I can do with them whatever I want. This is a proud, arrogant man who is confronting God in one sense. He's mocking him. He's saying, you're nothing. And you get a flavor of that as, he, as they praise the gods of gold and silver, and then of bronze, of iron, of wood, of stone. It's almost a mockery of the very idea of gods. As these things get less and less valuable, but let's call them all gods. If they're all gods, then are any of them gods? There's a hint there that Belshazzar doesn't believe in any kind of real god. He's a proud king who mocks gods and the very idea of God. And that's the scene that is set. That, that they're at this party, they're at this banquet, this is the kind of man we have as king. And then we move to the action. The pathetic king who met God. For all his pomp and show, for all his boasting and his proud, arrogant demeanor, suddenly, verse 5, suddenly, and that word suddenly marks a change into the next section of the story. story. And something happens. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. There's this disembodied hand, and Belshazzar doesn't know where it came from. Here he was, thinking he was the king of kings in control of everything. And all of a sudden, he realizes there is a power, there is a force beyond his control. It's kind of spooky. It's kind of weird. And he doesn't know where it came from, he doesn't know what it's doing, and he doesn't know what it has written. Now, there's a little detail there that it says it's near the lampstand. And what the writer's trying to tell us there is, it was well lit. They could see the writing, they just couldn't understand it. It wasn't that it was in a dark corner somewhere and they struggled to see it. Everyone could see that this writing had happened. It was visible. But they didn't know what it meant. And... As Belshazzar realizes there is this force, this power beyond his control, the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Literally, it says he became slack. He became slack. And the idea is of like a rope. So, you you know, a rope that's tied tight like this, it's got some strength in it. But if you undo the sort of knot in it, it just goes slack. And that's what happens to to Belshazzar. He is undone. He just, in a moment, he collapses in weakness, like a knot that's been untied. And obviously, round the the table or round the banquet hall, uh, there's panic. No one knows what's going on. No one knows what's happening. Then the queen, who's who's probably the queen mother, probably his his father's wife, uh, she hears what's going on, and having been around for a, for a little while, she remembers Daniel, and so she says, uh, we've got this guy, Daniel, and there's a little joke here. 
uh, as, as she describes Daniel in verse 12. Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding. He also had the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Uh, and literally, that's untie knotty matters. And of course, the writer's already said the king's been untied like a knot, uh, going loose. And here you have a man who can untie things. And if you've been reading Daniel, you realize Daniel's ability to solve riddles and problems comes from God. It's actually God who unties things, just like God has untied King Belshazzar. Now Daniel uh, arrives on the scene, and Belshazzar offers him all sorts of wealth and power. Uh, you'll be clothed in purple, exactly what he offers everyone else who couldn't solve the riddle. You'll have a gold chain placed around your neck. You'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel doesn't really have any time for that. Verse 17, Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Because Daniel knows. He knows what the writing says. God has revealed it to him. And he knows Belshazzar's days are numbered. So what's the point in getting power and privilege from this king who's not going to last any longer? Belshazzar's done for. So any honor that he gives to Daniel isn't worth anything. Daniel realizes this king is nothing but an arrogant mocker. And his days are numbered. His offer is not that's impressive. Well, uh, there you go. That's the, uh, that's the setting and then the action. And then we get the explanation. It's quite a long explanation. I'm sorry we can't go into every detail of this passage. I'd love to uh, give it more justice because it's such a wonderful story, uh, such a wonderful passage. Um, but Daniel reminds Belshazzar of Nebuchadnezzar, how he needed to be humbled before he could be raised up again. Uh, and then those verses that Pete read for us that really are the, the, the heart of the, of, of the warning to Belshazzar. You, Belshazzar, verse 22, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven in that action of taking the goblets and drinking from them. God saw that as a challenge to his own authority. You did not honor the gods who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And there's a delicious irony there. Remember as Belshazzar brought the goblets out and, and he drank wine from them and praised the gods of gold and silver. Belshazzar thought he could hold God in his hand. And here Daniel reminds him, no, you are in the hand of God. It's the other way around. Everything you had came from him. And then he reads the inscription, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Pete's explanation was, was great, wasn't it? Time's up. Uh, you've not met God's standards. Your kingdom's finished. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. That's the end of the road for Belshazzar. And what we're seeing here is God will not allow an arrogant king like Belshazzar to last indefinitely. There is a day of reckoning. Any who would set themselves up as a challenge to God, uh, someone who might think themselves to be king of kings, the one in control, God won't have it. In the long run, he will bring them to nothing. 
in the long run, he will bring them to nothing. One of my teachers at at Bible college used to say this, um, God has a massive God complex. God has a massive God complex. He really does think that he's God. And he's right. And so if you want to try and take his place or challenge him or confront him in any way, like Belshazzar does here, you're on a collision course with the God who rules the universe. And actually, in in one way, that's been the message that Daniel has set up for us. Uh, There's a little diagram that's going to come on the screen, I think, which uh, chapters 2 to 7 in Daniel are written in Aramaic, which was like the language of the day. Uh, the, the language of the world. And they've been um, building this, this picture for us. So uh, they're in three pairs that work in, as you can see, kind of a mirror image. So you've got chapter 2 and 7 on each end. They have two mysterious visions. Uh, chapter 3 and 6, they have two miraculous rescues. And in chapters 4 and 5, as Paul set up last week, we have two kings confronted by the true and living God. Chapters 2 and 7 are telling us God is in control of history. Chapters 3 and 6 tell us God is in control of now. He can turn a situation around with his mighty power. And chapters 4 and 5 are asking a question. Will you let God be in control of you? Will you submit to him? Even if you're the king of Babylon, even if you're the, the highest king, the strongest king in all the world, will you submit to the God who rules Now, what's the application for us? Well, there's lots. Um, It obviously would apply to anybody in a position of rule or authority, uh, and I guess one or two of us might be bosses at workplaces and things like that, and this is a warning, isn't it? Don't get too big for our boots. Don't uh, try and think we have so much power and authority in whatever area that we can challenge God. But actually, it is a challenge for all of us. I've been reading this book. It's very interesting. Uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a very interesting book. Uh, it takes us through the last couple of centuries. But one of the things the writer uh, points out, Carl Truman, in, in that book is we've turned inward in our authority. That actually now what we think is an authority is, is not people necessarily in positions of power so much as my own thoughts, my own feelings, the sovereignty of the individual, I get to decide what's right and wrong for myself, has become much more of a theme and a pattern. You see it in catchphrases and and little slogans, you do you. But what if there's a God who says you need to change that? Can we just keep on saying you do you? If there's a God who confronts us? There's the danger. Our cultural world today means that we all have the danger of the Belshazzar within. We all carry this little Belshazzar within our own hearts that's saying, yeah, you do you. What you think, that's, that's right. But will you allow God to have a say? Will you allow him to confront you? Remember what Paul taught us last week, and we see it again in chapter 5, verse 21 what Nebuchadnezzar had to acknowledge, the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. He's sovereign over all kingdoms, including the kingdoms we might build in our own hearts, including the little empires of personal ambition that we all can fall prey to. Will we acknowledge there is a God who is greater and there is a reckoning 
Belshazzar didn't realize that Darius was at the door, ready to take over. There was a reckoning, and it was close at hand. And one of the warnings here for anybody, for anybody out there, is will you submit and recognize the God who is sovereign, the most high God who is sovereign over the kingdoms of the world? The powerful king who is the most high God. What will you live for? Remember, we started with that poem and Ozymandias, the king of kings, thought himself invincible, just like Belshazzar. Built a great city, built a great empire, and nothing beside remains. That's a really challenging thought, because what are you living for? What are you building? There's so many areas we put our effort and our energy, and what are we building? And what will remain of what we are building? As I consider that question, I find it very challenging. I find it very challenging. Uh, you know, even in, in my own job, you know, building a ministry, building SBS, but what am I building? Am I, am I just building a, a sort of structure and a program? Because that's not going to last. What are you building? What are you living for? What, what are you trying to build your life upon? If it's a personal kingdom that you are building for yourself and your own glory, that is not going to last. It's going to go the way of all the kingdoms of the world. It's going to go the way of Babylon. But in Daniel, we have been hearing a, a little note so far that there is another kingdom. That the kingdom we saw in chapter 2. Uh, the kingdom that was the rock that was not made by a human hand that came and smashed all the other kingdoms, the kingdom that will last forever. The kingdom of God. That is the only place to build. You're either living for Jesus or you're living for dust. You're either living for Jesus or you're living for dust. That's, that's the challenge, right? Right? Well, that is challenging, but, but what about uh, for those of us who do want to submit to and live for King Jesus? Well, what are we to take from this? Well, I think Daniel's a very wonderful example, isn't he? He knows this truth, that the Most High is sovereign, and he knows that it's only his kingdom that's going to last in the long run, and so what does he do? He keeps calm, he carries on, he's faithful to God. He doesn't worry when there are arrogant, proud mockers out there making fun of his God, he knows God is sovereign and he will call them to account. He didn't have to panic, like when we see maybe famous people mocking the idea of God and, and ridiculing anybody who believes. And it's easy, isn't it, to panic or worry or think, oh, remember the Most High Sovereign over the kingdoms of the world. He, he can sort that out. There is a reckoning. We don't need to be intimidated into silence. And we don't need to be impressed by offers of power and advancement and prestige. You know, as, as Belshazzar offers him all these treasures and trinkets, if he will only come and interpret the writing. And, and you know, Daniel says, I'll interpret the writing, but I don't want any of your, your gifts. They're not worth anything. Sometimes when we're out there in the world, there can be offers. And sometimes people might want you to compromise your integrity and say, well, if you do, we'll give you this, we'll give you that, we'll give you the other. Well, someone who knows that the Most High is sovereign, like Daniel does, he doesn't have to be impressed by those kinds of offers. He can carry on. 
He can work in faithfulness, and actually God, in his faithfulness to Daniel, does give him a position of, of influence and authority, but that's not his goal. His goal is faithfulness, knowing that God is the one who gives authority as he sees fit. If you're in that position, then like Daniel, use it wisely and use it faithfully. But don't compromise your integrity to get it. And the way he just carries on without any apparent fear. And we've been seeing that through the character of Daniel, haven't we? Throughout the story. And my wife pointed this out to me. His boldness to do certain things. Just the the way he has the quickness of thought to just go and speak to people when he needs to. And and just with that quiet, steady confidence, it's, it's remarkable. And I think that comes from a deep knowledge of the truth that it is the Most High who is sovereign. The more we rest in and delight in that truth, the more we can keep calm and carry on. We know in the end, he will rule and his kingdom will be forever. The Belshazzars of this world will not last. Wonderfully, King Jesus, not a proud and arrogant king, but a king who comes in all humility and submits to the sovereign God. That is where history is headed, to his kingdom that will never, ever end. And the wonderful news is we get to be a part of that kingdom. If rather than Belshazzar, who was arrogant, we instead come with humility, realizing our need and realizing that God can meet that need, realizing that his grace is sufficient for us. We don't have to build our own kingdoms. We can rest in and rely on the God who built his kingdom by grace. I'm going to pray and then we're going to hear, or if you're at home you can sing along uh, to another song which reminds us of that grace that is the foundation of the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Daniel 5. Thank you for its message. We pray that as we listen to it, we would be aware of that bit in our own hearts that can act very much like Belshazzar, that can fail to honor and recognize you, that can sometimes be arrogant and sometimes forget there is a God we are accountable to. Thank you for the warning. And thank you for the encouragement of this passage that you are the true God, the real God who will build his kingdom. Help us to bear that in mind this week and may that truth be reflected in the way we live the way we work, the way we speak, the way we act. And may you get the glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.